It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Welcome to Discover Your Spiritual Identity. For the last few weeks, we've been focused on our calling to be priests of the Most High God. In fact, the Bible refers to us as an everlasting priesthood. So this is a calling that will persist from time to eternity. And also, uh, last week, we brought in the fact that priests were referred to in the Old Testament as ministers of the altar. Now, we in the New Testament who have been born again, who have become a holy priesthood according to 1 Peter 2.5, a royal priesthood according to 1 Peter 2.9, we have inherited the right as well to be called ministers of the altar. In Joel chapter 1, verse 13, the priests are given that title. Why? Because they ministered at an altar, the brass altar in the outer court of the tabernacle, and they ministered at the golden altar in the holy place as well. So they ministered at an altar on a daily basis, and that was the connecting point. That was the link between eternity and time, between heaven and earth, between a holy God and an unholy human race. And at an altar, everything changes. That's, in a sense, the portal into transformation. Now, what is the altar that we need to minister at as new covenant, born again, children of the Most High God? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, they came to a sacrificial altar, and they would partake of certain sacrifices that were offered up there. They would eat of the lamb. They would eat of the bullock. They would eat of the various animals that were sacrificed on the altar, and it was like having a feast with God. It was celebrating reconciliation with God. Well, in the New Testament, on a spiritual level, we eat at an altar called Golgotha, also known as Calvary, where the Son of God was offered up for us. And he said, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no life in him. Now, that's hard for a person who doesn't know the Lord to wrap his or her mind around. But once you're born again, you understand the spiritual application that Jesus was the Word made flesh. So to eat his flesh is a symbolic way of saying you're eating the Word, the Word that was made flesh, and becoming one with God through his Word. Well, the Bible also says the life is in the blood. The life of an animal is in the blood of an animal. The life of a human is in the blood of a human. And the life of God is in the blood of God. And if God ever had blood, 
He had blood in the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20.28 says, We are the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So that was God blood. That was divine blood. That was holy blood. That was unpolluted blood flowing in the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the life is in the blood, well, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of life. So drinking in the blood is a symbolic way of saying you're drinking in the spirit of God and coming into union with God as a result. Those are the two ways we commune with God by the word and by the spirit. And we do that at an altar called Golgotha, where the Son of God was offered up for us. And every day we remember the Lord's death until he comes and until resurrection has its full effect in this world. So we too are ministers of the altar. And just like the priests in the Old Testament would minister at an altar by bringing the sacrifices that the people brought to the tabernacle to God. They would wash the sacrifices at the labor. They would present that sacrifice on an altar where there was a fire that continually burned. So it was their job to open the door of reconciliation to people who were guilt-ridden, to people who were bound up in their sins, depressed, discouraged, feeling unworthy of God. And the priests, the ministers of the altar, would give them new hope, a new beginning, a new start by leading them through the ritual of a sacrificial animal taking their place in death. Why did that have to happen? Because sin's ultimate outcome is death. In the very beginning, God told Adam and Eve, in the day you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And in that very day that they transgressed, they died. They died spiritually and began dying mentally, emotionally, and physically. And then, of course, death over a period of hundreds of years finally took its toll in their lives. They died and began dying. Well, in a similar way, when we sin, there's a part of us that dies. But just like the animal suffered death in the place of the repentant Israelite so that proper restitution took place, in like manner, Jesus bore our sin and tasted death for every man. That's where the new covenant sacrifice took place. And we, as priests of the Most High God, welcome the lowly, the last, the least, the lost, the people that are at their wits end, the people that are suicidal, the people that think there's no hope for them, the people that think they're cut off from God and God could never love them. We welcome them with open arms to the altar where the Son of God was offered up for us all. Yes, we are ministers of the altar. And we have the word of reconciliation, and we have the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul wrote the Corinthians, and it's certainly relevant for us as well. To be reconciled means to be restored to a right relationship with God, and that takes place at an altar. 
So altars are very important. In fact, I just recently preached at my church and said, come and be altered. But I spelled it A-L-T-E-R-E-D. Because at an altar, you receive a divine alteration. He alters your mindset. He alters your attitudes. He alters your emotional responses. He alters your entire life. At an altar, you get altered in more ways than one. Praise God. There's so much rich revelation associated with altars. Let's go back to the father of the faith, Abraham. Do you remember when God first called Abraham and abruptly disrupted his life? God has a way of doing that, but it's always good. And he showed up on the doorstep of Abraham's life. And listen to what he said in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. God said, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that was God's initial revelation to Abram. Later on, his name would become Abraham. I think it's significant that God told him to get out of three things. Get out of your country, get out from your family, get out from your father's house, because most people identify themselves those three ways. Their national identity, their cultural identity, and their family identity, their family name. And when God said, come out from all of that, it was his way of saying, I'm going to give you a new identity. And he became the father of the faith, the patriarch of the Israelite people. And certainly we trace our heritage back to him too, because the Bible said, we who believe are children of Abraham. So if we walk in the same faith that he walked in and we respond to God's call to come out of this world and be a separated people, then in a spiritual sense, we become children of Abraham. Now, what was Abraham's response? Go down a little further in that chapter and you'll find in verse 7 that the Lord appeared again to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And what was his response? The very next line says, there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So when he gets this revelation, this prophetic promise, even though he's a stranger in this region, he doesn't really own much except what he brought with him on his journey. Yet God said that land would be his. Later on, God said, look to the north, south, east, and west, and whatever you see, I will give it to you. Imagine that. But he builds an altar to the Lord because he's consecrating himself to the vision. He's not asking God for anything. He's not pleading with God to move in his behalf. God just told him he was going to move for him. But he was consecrating himself to the divine direction and directive that he had received. 
I think we need to do the same thing. Whenever God lays it on our heart to do something, to go somewhere, to somehow fulfill a particular purpose in our lives, in our heart of hearts, we should build an altar to the Lord and consecrate ourselves to that vision. Then in the next verse, verse 8, it said Abraham moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, in the English Bibles, we find the word Lord over 2,000 times, but it's translated from something that is called the Tetragrammaton. It's four letters in Hebrew, yud heh vav heh that transliterate into Y-H-W-H in the English alphabet and probably is pronounced Yahweh, or some say it should be pronounced Yahovah. Uh, we're not absolutely sure on that. I asked a Jewish man one time what the proper pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton was, and he looked at me with a smile. He said, that is a problem the Messiah will solve when he comes and he wasn't messianic yet, I thought to myself, yeah, that's certainly a problem that the Messiah will solve when he comes. But let's go back to the text now, Genesis 12, verse 8. So Abram called on the name of Yahweh. He called on the name of the Lord. He had a personal relationship with a personal God, not some kind of impersonal life force. The universe didn't have his back like the popular book that many people are reading right now. It's not that cold. It's not that mechanical. You don't just have an impersonal force that works in your behalf. You have a personal God who is involved in every detail of your life and loves you with an everlasting love. So Abram built an altar to Yahweh, to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Didn't say he asked for anything. He just called on the name of God. Sometimes you ought to just walk through the woods or drive around town in your car and just say, I love you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I'm not asking you for anything. I just want to magnify your name. That's what you do when you build an inward altar. But there's a hidden secret, a hidden message in that particular verse, Genesis 12, 8, because Abram built his altar and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Well, Bethel means house of God. It was the name that later on Jacob gave to that area. It means house of God. And Ai means destruction. So Abram was between the house of God and destruction. The house of God on one side, destruction on the other side. I thought, what a picture. What a profound picture of the condition we're all in. We build this altar in our hearts to the Most High God, and we've got the house of God on one side, the family of God, the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, the purpose of God, and then to the other side is destruction the prince of darkness who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and all of those who are under his sway that want to still influence us. 
You've got to build an altar between the house of God and destruction and make up your mind, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be a victor. I'm going to cast my attention toward Bethel, not toward Ai. So Abram was constantly building altars. And you can read through the rest of Genesis and find that over and over again, he would do that very thing. And it wasn't always to ask God for something. Sometimes it was a grateful statement, thanking God for what he had done. Altars should be a part of our continual existence because we're ministers of the altar. Not only do we minister to people, not only do we minister to people and bring them to the altar at Golgotha, at Calvary, but we minister to God there too. We constantly should be ministering to him in significant ways. In fact, there are a number of specific ways we offer up sacrifices to God on an altar. And I'd like to talk about that some because I think it's really significant. See, let me go to a scripture I quoted a couple of episodes back. It says in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that coming to him is to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The amazing thing about those two verses is it narrows God's focus. In the Old Testament, the people brought their sacrifice to the priests at the temple in order to be restored to God. But in the New Testament, you become the sacrifice, you become the priest, and you become the temple. So in a non-egotistical way, it was all about you. Because God wasn't really interested in religious rituals. God was interested in the implementation of a plan that would evolve through centuries and millennia until finally it wouldn't be about a temple that was a building and a priesthood that was a mediatorial group to help people get to God. Neither was it about sacrificial animals being offered up on an altar, but it was all about you becoming a living sacrifice on an internal altar, the altar of your heart, and you becoming the priest that ministers to God because you are the temple of the living God. Can you see how it was all about you all the way through the evolution of this plan? Now, let me talk for a few minutes about the sacrifices, the seven spiritual sacrifices you should be offering up if you're a part of God's holy priesthood. To begin with, and this is first in line of the way you should approach God, we go to Psalm 51 verses 15, 16, and 17. David had just fallen in horrible sins, horrible sins. You know the story of the downfall of David. I don't have to rehearse it if you've read the Bible at all. He went to the pinnacle of intimacy with God and then fell to the depths, to the abyss of uncleanness and evil. 
How could that happen? Because this world is a place where sin is stalking you and wants to make you its prey. But David knew where to go to be restored. And he said in Psalm 51, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So the first sacrifice you bring to God, the first spiritual sacrifice you offer up as a priest to God is the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart. And this world will break you. Life will break you. Jesus indicated that everyone here gets broken one way or the other. He he indicated that we will either fall on the rock and be broken or the rock will fall on us. Well, I'd much rather throw myself at the mercy of the rock of ages and be broken in the same sense that a horse is broken when it's trained and then something useless becomes useful. It doesn't mean that that horse is abused or beat down in some way emotionally. It just means that horse becomes useful to the one who rides it. It's like a Marine coming out of boot camp. He doesn't look beat down, depressed, and discouraged, but that's a broken man. That's a broken man because he, from that point forward, will be willing to run into enemy fire to the endangerment of his own life if his commanding officer says that it must be done. So his will now is broken, and he's submitted to a higher authority. He walks with confidence. He walks with strength. You can see strength and commitment and boldness and confidence in his eyes. But inwardly, he's broken in a good sense because his bravery now is funneled toward a cause that is higher than him. That's the way we should be. We approach God with a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that is smitten with contrition, godly sorrow over our sins. The sorrow of the world works death, the Bible said. The sorrow of the world will lead a person to suicidal thoughts and manic depression. The sorrow of the world ends with mindsets like, I'm worthless. There's no use for me to even live. Why am I even functioning as a human being? But the sorrow that the Bible calls godly sorrow ends in salvation. It takes you to a place of victory altogether. So the first sacrifice you give to God is the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart. Then Psalm 4 verse 5 says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now righteousness is not only an act, it's an attitude. The root word is right. In other words, you get right with God. You do all you can to make your thoughts right, your emotions right, your actions right, your reactions right. And whether it's a tangible thing or an intangible inward attitude of the heart, you offer God a sacrifice of righteousness. If you're a priest of the Most High God and a minister of the altar, you minister to God daily at the altar of your heart by offering him righteous attitudes and righteous purposes 
and righteous plans. Then the the fourth sacrifice is found in Psalm 27, verse 6. Number one is the sacrifice of a broken spirit. Number two is the sacrifice of a contrite heart. Number three is sacrifices of righteousness. Then number four, listen to what David said. Now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Most people, when they think of the word sacrifice, they think of something dreadful that involves a lot of self-denial and maybe even emotional pain to give something up, to deny themselves of something they desire, but they sacrifice it. No, the word here in Psalm 27 means something altogether different. Because a sacrifice was an animal offering that was offered up, consumed with holy fire. Why do I say holy fire? Because the fire that was on the tabernacle of Moses fell from heaven to start with. The fire that was on the, the brass altar in the temple of Solomon fell from heaven to begin with. And they were told to never let that fire go out. So, to offer God a sacrifice of joy is to offer a heart that is burning with spiritual joy. It's so easy to walk in depression. It's so easy to walk in discouragement. It's the default system of the fallen nature. Just like you have programs on your computer and they've got certain default settings that they automatically go back to unless you save a new setting the default setting of the fallen nature is to be depressed, to be self-condemning, guilt-ridden, overwhelmed with discouragement. But you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and you have an opportunity even greater than what David had when he wrote those words, because you can tap into the inward regenerated spirit that God's put inside of you where there's unspeakable joy that came from heaven and you can make a choice to be joyful but not just for your own sake you offer God a sacrifice of joy what if your children if you're a parent you can relate to this what if your children only approached you with tears and crying all the time. Every time your son or your daughter showed up at your door, they were crying about this or crying about that. It would get a little old. And I think sometimes we need to reevaluate how we pray because God doesn't want you to just come to him squalling all the time. Certainly he doesn't ignore that when it's necessary, but why not walk into his presence with explosive joy? thanking him for eternal life, praising him, rejoicing. In fact, the word rejoice is a word that streams from the word joy. It means to rejoice, re-experience the joy all over again, or return to the source of your joy. It has a double meaning. So you offer God the sacrifice of a rejoicing heart. That warms the heart of God, just like your children warm your heart when they come to you with beaming, smiling faces, and they tell you how much they love you and how thankful they are for you. Well, that leads us to number five, because the fifth kind of spiritual sacrifice we're to offer 
is called a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And one of the best places to find that is in Psalm 116, verse 17. And that's where the psalmist said, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Praise God. Thanksgiving is so powerful. Did you know in Old English, the word thank was related to the word think? Oh, yes. Thank was past tense. Think was present tense. Just like you drank yesterday and you drink today, or in Old English, you stank yesterday and you stink today. Don't take that personally. In like manner, you thank yesterday and you think today. It was the past tense of the word think. It meant what you thought yesterday. Well, now those two words have taken different roads of meaning altogether, but they're still related because, beloved friend, if you don't think, you won't thank. If you don't think about how good God has been to you, if you keep your focus on all the negatives in your life, you're not going to thank him. Choose to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a burning, joyous expression of gratitude. See, that's the kind of way you should approach God. You're a priest. You minister to God at an altar, an internal altar of the heart. Let thanks rise up from you like incense every day of your life. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, we read the sixth kind of sacrifice that we're to offer God. It says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So there you have it. We're ministers of the altar. We're priests of the Most High God. We're living stones, and we're being built together a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. None of these would be acceptable to God. We would not be receivable in the presence of God were it not for the fact that Jesus paid the price so that door could open to us. And when we come to God, we come with the sacrifice of a broken spirit, a submitted will, a contrite spirit, smitten with contrition over our errors. Number three, a sacrifice of righteousness, right thinking, right attitudes. Number four, sacrifices of joy. Number five, sacrifices of thanksgiving. Number six, sacrifices of praise. And that's when we arrive at number seven. Where Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And again, that doesn't just mean something dreadful, mournful, negative, where you die to self and become a sacrifice to God. It means something joyous and wonderful where you're totally and wholly consecrated to him. Well, we've covered a lot of territory, and we're going to continue with this theme. In the next episode, we're going to reveal how we are ministers of the altar and relate it back to the two altars in the tabernacle of Moses, the brass altar in the outer court, and the golden altar in the holy place, and all the rich, rich symbolism that accompanies those two altars, and how that is all internalized and spiritualized in you right now 
in the new covenant. It's going to be great. So join me on the next episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. You're an everlasting priesthood. This is going to last forever, and you can shout about it. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.